I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of The Women in Tech Show, a podcast about what we work on, not what it feels like to be a woman in tech. For more information about the show, go to wit.fm. Technology changes the way we learn and engage with content. Throughout her career, Miki Revena has worked on bringing technological advancements to education. We talked about her experience in the 80s when computers were just starting to appear in classrooms. Miki also talked about bringing the internet to schools in the 90s and how educational content has evolved. At the end, we talked about how big data and artificial intelligence are used in education. Miki is currently Vice President of Business Development in Global Online Learning at Pearson. Miki, welcome to the Women in Tech Show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to have you on because you have an extensive background and experience in different areas. Some of them are in education, research, and marketing. What do you find interesting about these? So I will say I actually started life as a, a reporter, a journalist, um, and got into education sort of a little bit later. Um, but it was really driven by a sense of curiosity about, you know, sort of what makes the world work and what makes, you know, learning happen. I got involved with Native American education issues early on before I came over to the technology side and got really interested in the very early days of technology, seeing it combined with really traditional Native culture as a way to spark learning for young people on a reservation. Um, and so that kind of encouraged me to move forward in terms of thinking about technology, education technology, and the incredible opportunities that could open up to bring great learning to every student everywhere. Do you remember some of those challenges that you encountered when you were working with Native Americans and at the reservation in terms of challenges in education? Sure. So this was like in the mid-80s, and it was after many decades, you know, in Native American communities of either um, young people being taken away from their culture uh, for education or being sort of forced into substandard education, you know, on the reservation. Um, and I was involved with a group that was looking at um, how to improve education opportunities for young people in Native communities on reservations and how to use sort of the latest tools and thinking about education to make that possible. But I remember really clearly the first time I ever heard about somebody using a computer in education, it was uh, in a Native school in what was then called the Papago Reservation in Arizona. And it was using a program called Logo, um, which was a little programming language that made essentially a turtle move around on the screen. And because the turtle has such cultural significance um, in that particular community, Community, the kids really took to it as something that they were excited about. So suddenly you had these kids in a very remote native village in Arizona near the Mexican border um, getting really excited about essentially doing computer programming on their computers as a way to open up the world um, and understand it in a really different way. So that was really sort of the upside of seeing how technology could break down barriers and to bring 
really great educational opportunities to students anywhere. And this was, you know, a good 10 years before the internet was available. So people were still working on, you know, computers that weren't connected to each other even, but still for young people, for children, the opportunity to explore and invent was exciting and really opened up some exciting new ventures and prospects for them. You're talking about a time where you were working before the internet existed. Later in your career, you got involved in this program called E-Rate, which had a goal of wiring every American school to the internet. Can you talk about this time? Sure. So this was actually part of the Telecommunications Act of 1996. I'm really dating myself at this point, but it was really when the internet was just beginning to be available generally. Um, and it was recognized that in order to make this equitably available um, to students everywhere, schools and libraries actually, um, we're going to need a lot better access to funding um, and better access to technology. And so this Telecommunications Act, essentially what it did is a federal uh, law that was passed that essentially charged every American about 35 cents on their telephone bill every month that all went into a giant fund that basically subsidized the cost of wiring schools and libraries around the country um, to the internet. Um, and so if you think about back in like 1995, 1996, you know, most Libraries around America, except for ones in really big cities, had dial-up internet connection. Um, most schools, if they had any connection to the internet at all, it was maybe in the office. Um, and typically there wasn't a local area network even within the school to connect all the computers together. Um, and so this program, which still exists today, by the way, every year it basically funds a couple of billion dollars to defray the cost of technology in America's schools and America's libraries. Back then, it was really pretty revolutionary, literally funding the first local area networks, the first um, internet connections to schools, the first high-speed internet connections to schools, and then really kind of growing out from there. The program recently celebrated its uh, 20th anniversary, and the uh, goal of wiring every school and library to the internet has actually been met. Where we are now is that um, because of the pandemic, um, because of where we are with technology, extending the power of the internet for schools um, out into the community to students' homes is really sort of the next frontier for the E-Rate program. I haven't been involved in a long time at this point, but um, it was really exciting to be in the first couple of years there, um, helping schools in here in Brooklyn where I live, um, you know, inner city schools that didn't have access to a lot or schools in the most rural parts of America, getting connected to the internet and seeing what kids could do um, if they had access to the information superhighway. Exactly. And you're talking about schools being on the internet and now there's a lot of focus on what is the content that they're going to interact with. I saw also early in your career from 1986 to 1987, you worked at Scholastic as editor-in-chief focusing on electronic learning. Can you talk about some of the things that were being built at that time in learning? Sure. So this was back in the earliest days. And I love to tell the story about the first teachers that I met that used computers in their classrooms because they weren't 
the young tech dudes. Um, they were often women in their mid-career who may have already been in their 50s and 60s um, and had been teaching for quite a long time, but saw instantly the possibilities and the power of having a computer or multiple computers in their classroom. And so back then, you know, there was starting to be some shrink wrap software, things like the Oregon Trail and things like that, that were starting to be available. Again, not necessarily connected across the internet or anything else, but really where we saw teachers and students start to make incredible headway was you know, typing in basic programs into the computer to um, do early word processing, to make, you know, geometric patterns, to start tracking things through very elemental databases, to do math problems. Um, really almost anything that you could think of in the earliest days of computers, elementary school teachers and as well as teachers in middle and high school were starting to harness those things for their classrooms. And, you know, if you can imagine what it was like to be the first teacher in, you know, XYZ elementary school to have, you know, the very first Apple computer in the back of your classroom and what you might do with that, that's what these magazines were there to support, um, to really help teachers get inspired and to figure out things that they could do with these incredible tools. And you fast forward now, you know, uh, 20, 25, 30 years since then, you know, what's available to learners and to teachers on the internet and the incredible uh, rich array of content and resources that folks can lay their hands on. It's really a, a miracle um, to kind of see how much that's grown. Where we are now, of course, is that helping teachers find the really good stuff um, that will help advance their teaching goals, to help students find the materials that will help address their personalized learning needs, and to bring all of that together to help education accomplish the kinds of goals that we need to accomplish in order for young people to have brilliant futures. You know, I think one of the things that we've seen in the last decade or so is that, you know, young people thinking about where they might go with college and career, the economy is going to be really different um, when they enter it as they become adults. And having that ability to be adaptable, to be resilient, um, to learn how to learn, and to find out where to get more information about just about everything is going to be absolutely critical. And that's where I see technology going, especially technology and education. Build those kind of adaptable kids um, that will be the adaptable and resilient adults of the future. You're talking now about the next generation of tooling that is being built in education where we're leveraging personalized needs, identifying what content is useful and serve that content. You're particularly working right now at Pearson as vice president. I saw this company was founded more than 170 years ago in 1844. Can you give some quick context about the company and its impact? Because a lot of what you're talking about, I imagine you are building at Pearson, right? Right as we speak, absolutely. So, you know, Pearson across its history has been really involved in helping people live better lives through learning and through education. Um, and what that's meant in this current era is, first of all, finding multiple ways um, for young people to have a great education. I came to Pearson um, working on online learning. You know, as co-founder of Connections Academy, which is one of the large providers of 
online schools and virtual schools around uh, the U.S. and around the world. So that's a very particular use of technology where young people are you know, going to complete schools online with no barriers whatsoever in terms of their zip code, in terms of where they might live, in terms of what their communities might be like. They have access to the best teachers and the best content that's available around the globe. And then where we're going, uh, driving into the future, is exactly, as you mentioned, around personalized learning. So it's the combination of you know, artificial intelligence and figuring out how to help the technology adapt to the needs of the individual. And then even more exciting from where I'm sitting, it's helping teachers use that data and that information to tailor the learning experiences for the young people that they're working with. So there's a fair bit that the technology can do on its own. I personally think that there's nothing more powerful than really good content, really good data, and really good technology tools in the hands of a fantastic teacher. Can you give some examples of what kind of data is useful for a teacher? So in our online schools, for example, one of the things that we see is that um, it's a combination of being able to see in a really granular way how a student is progressing through a particular concept. So if you think about you know, addition and subtraction of fractions, for example, that's a, a concept that students encounter in any education setting. In an online school, the teacher will be able to track in the background and see how many tries does it take for a student to solve a particular problem in an online lesson? Where else do they go for information? Do they take advantage of the extra resources that are built into the lesson? Do they reach out to their teacher for help? And if not, how can we encourage them to do that? So looking at a combination of mastery data, um, how the students are making their way through content, and then their sort of behavior in the technology tool, um, how fast or slow they go, where else they look for help, how long they stay on a particular concept before they move on, how often they go back to refresh their memory about something. All of those pieces of data are incredibly useful to a teacher to be able to say, I can see that, you know, that Johnny um, is really struggling figuring out the difference between the, you know, the numerator and the denominator, whereas Sally is ready to move on to a much more complex kind of problem. In an online school, you're able to have Johnny and Sally move at their own pace um, because they're not literally sitting in front of you, um, waiting for you as the teacher um, to you know, give them the next piece of content. They're able to access that content on their own time at the pace that works best for them. And you as a teacher are there to help them move as fast or as slow as they need to in order to really master that content and be ready to move forward. So the scenario you're describing is fully online learning, right? It is fully online learning, although, you know, frankly, one of the things I think we've seen during this pandemic is that the, the lines are really blurring between what we would have traditionally called online school and what we might call, you know, digital learning in a traditional classroom. And that's partly because, you know, pretty much every teacher in America and every student in America at this time last year suddenly went into what we might call emergency remote learning. Everybody had to learn how to do online learning in a big hurry. And so I think what we'll see happening as things get back to normal gradually um, over the rest of this academic year into next academic year is some of those uh, tools and resources that schools and teachers were using to 
reach each other at a distance and to tailor the learning experience for students will continue to be part of the learning experience, even for students who are back to a face-to-face brick and mortar kind of environment with a really fluid kind of back and forth between online learning, blended learning, and face-to-face learning. That's what I hope anyway. I hope that one of the silver linings of this terrible time that we've gone through is that educators really embrace what technology can do and stop making this um, kind of binary distinction between online learning and face-to-face learning. It's all one big continuum, certainly as our young people experience their learning and um, as the tools that are available for schools um, become more and more sophisticated. I think we'll see it not being such a sharp line um, between online learning and more traditional kinds of learning. From talking to you, I understand that online learning has a benefit of allowing the teacher to see personalized data about the student's progress, something that might be harder to measure in the traditional context. Are there downsides to online learning, though? I think there's definitely downsides to low quality online learning. And, you know, I'd say that teachers and students and schools experienced quite a bit of that over the past year because they didn't really have the training, the resources, and the time, frankly, um, to do the quality job that I think everybody would have wanted to do. So you hear things like, you know, kids sitting in front of Zoom for six hours a day while a teacher is trying to do everything live and in real time. I think that's not a great online learning experience. Um, Likewise, students who are only working with asynchronous learning materials, with uh, learning materials that don't have a teacher sort of involved with it, I think depending on the learner, that can also be a bit of an alienating experience and maybe not a really engaging experience. What we try to do in the online schools that we support is to find that, that really good balance between you know, self-paced learning where students are engaging with really rich content at their own pace on their own time and really intentional, tailored, direct instruction that a teacher offers through, you know, a real-time learning experience, a Zoom class or a live lesson, as we call it in our world. If you have those two things balanced together correctly, I think the online learning experience can be a really great one for any kind of learner. There are some learners that don't love learning online, and you know that's a very individual kind of choice. I don't necessarily love working online every day, and I'm sure you don't either. But you know, for most learners, the ability to be able to move at their own pace, to have learning tailored to their specific learning needs, and to be in a school, online school setting that lets them engage with their peers, participate in clubs and activities, have a really rich kind of school experience without it being tied necessarily to a brick and mortar place. That opens up all kinds of possibilities. So yeah, there's some downsides, um, especially if it's not done really well, but I think the upsides really outnumber those. Like you're saying, we can't really generalize the downsides of online learning, there are a lot of variables like the quality of the content, how rich it is, what tools are the children using, the students. And there's a huge issue in this country still with um, you know the digital divide. It's, it's kind of ironic when, when the, we were talking about the E-rate earlier in the mid-90s, the digital divide was around schools that had access to the internet and schools that didn't. Now it's about you know what tools do students have in their homes? Do they have access to high-speed internet? Do they have a good quality 
device to access. We saw, you know, in the sort of um, remote schooling that was happening over this past year, that there were a significant minority of students that didn't have good access to the kind of tools that they needed to participate fully. And that's just a shame. Um, You know, we're the richest country in the world. We should consider access to the internet a right as much as clean air and water to drink. And every student ought to be able to access the world of um, amazing materials that are out there on the internet. I think we're getting there, but that's a hurdle that we really need to conquer in order for everybody to have the best of what's available for online learning. Exactly. And to add to that, right now, unfortunately, we still have the pandemic factor where I see it affecting also the environments that are available for the students to learn, right? They might have internet at home, but maybe they don't have a quiet, peaceful environment where they can focus. And libraries, we're not encouraged to gather in places to use computers available, right? Like libraries and because of this pandemic. It's very, very difficult right now. And, and you know, I think prior to the pandemic and knock on wood, um, once we get to the other side of this, those what we almost call, I want to call third spaces, places where um, students can gather to um, get online, to, you know, be around their peers and each other and caring adults that might not be a physical school, but gives them access to online learning of various kinds. Those will be available again, but you're absolutely correct during this time, you know, the challenge of finding a good working environment for an awful lot of kids, especially in, you know, with multi-generational households with lots going on, it can be a bit of a challenge. Um, And so I think kids are very adaptable. They find a way, but I'm really looking forward to being on the other side of this so that kids can be in the learning environment that works absolutely best for them. And sometimes that might be at home. Sometimes that might be in a library. Sometimes that might be in a traditional school. And for some kids, it might be all three. Going back to your work with Connections Academy, which you mentioned earlier, which is this online learning platform, I saw that the program was serving 75,000 students from around the world. From your experience, what are some challenges of serving a global audience? Well, and the one exciting thing is that we actually went from about 75,000 students at the end of last academic year to more than 100,000 this year, um, and really because of the pandemic. Um, you know, families were seeking out a built-for-purpose, designed-from-scratch online school to replace some of the patched-together emergency provisions that they were seeing. So our enrollment really skyrocketed um, this fall, and, you know, we hope that the families and students that felt like this was a good environment for them stick with us. And those are primarily across the United States, but also, as you mentioned, around the world. So a couple of things that we're seeing outside the United States, one is access to technology is also not evenly distributed around the globe, right? Um, And so there are some places where you know, internet connection and infrastructure has been really emphasized by, you know, the governments of countries that want to ensure that everybody has access to those things. And then there are other places where, you know, your best you're going to be able to do is access the internet through your cell phone. And so the idea of really being, bringing a high quality online schooling opportunity to students everywhere will be largely dependent on how fast we're able to push 
to get uh, really good internet access and good devices available to every student everywhere. That being said, it's been very interesting to see how you know both individual families and then pockets of students literally all over the globe are um, gravitating towards these like you know purpose-built online schools as an opportunity to, you know, for example, get a U.S. high school diploma, even if you live in the Philippines or if you live in South Africa or if you live somewhere in India, um, you can join one of these online schools and work towards a U.S. high school diploma. I'm also working on some British curriculum online schools, and so you can work towards the uh, credential that you'll get at the end of a, a British curriculum secondary school experience. And where you live and, you know, sort of what your zip code is or what your postcode is, depending on where you are in the world, doesn't determine what kind of education you can get. You can actually access an education from anywhere, you know, through the power of the internet. And we're starting to see that that message and that opportunity become of interest to people literally all over the globe. With such a number of users around the world, what are some of the ways in which you gather feedback from them? Such a fantastic question. And, uh, you know, from the very, very beginning, um, when we founded Connections Academy back in 2001, we put a really high priority on hearing from the families that we serve and the students that we serve. So every year we run a big parent satisfaction survey um, for all the students that, are, that we serve everywhere around the U.S. and around the globe. And what's been really, really interesting is, you know, in the early years when we had, you know, three or 4,000 students, you know, we would get, you know, 95% of the parents that responded to the survey said they were really satisfied with the program. They were happy with their children's teachers. They felt like their kids were making good progress. We thought, oh, that's great. As we get bigger, are we going to be able to make maintain that level of quality. And the really exciting thing is, even now, um, with 100,000 students around the globe, we're seeing those same kinds of responses, that families that have chosen this kind of education are absolutely satisfied, 95% and higher satisfied with the experience. What's really exciting to me is, you know, 95% or more of them satisfied with their children's teachers, satisfied with the curriculum, and really satisfied that their kids were getting good preparation for where they might go post um, their K-12 education. So we're constantly gathering that, you know, sort of uh, rating feedback on the service that we provide. And then within the lessons and activities, um, we're constantly looking for feedback from students on how they like that particular lesson, how they like that um, particular unit of instruction. Um, uh, their teachers get feedback from them on a regular basis as well. The last question I want to ask you is more focused on your career. I'm particularly curious if there's a piece of advice that you've found useful yeah, as a matter of fact, I think I'm becoming more and more of a fan of curiosity the older I get and just sort of following what really interests you into um, the thicket of what you don't know. <laughs> so, you know, um, believe me, when I started out as a journalist, I never thought I would work in education. When I started out in education, I never thought I would work in online education. Um, when I started out in online education, I never thought I would be working with uh, families on the other side of the world. I mean, each step along the way has really been uh, just getting that itch to understand and to know more and following it. I've been very fortunate in that the work that I've done has allowed me to kind of pursue 
the stuff that interests me. And, you know, as long as I worked really hard and delivered what I was supposed to deliver, I could extend beyond that and look at what might be coming next. So I would say that scratch your itch um, to understand what else is out there, to really be curious about how the world is shaping up and emerging. Pay really close attention to the next generation and what it is that's driving them and what their world will be like. And if we're together, kind of stay focused on those things. It's almost unlimited um, what you can do with a career in education technology and hopefully making the world a better place along the way. Miki, thank you for coming on the show. It's been great chatting with you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun.